Am I living in a way that's commensurate with, that accords with, that's reflective of the great cost at which God bought me, adopted me, purchased me, redeemed me? Well, let's look at what Peter says about how we should live. Very first, he says that we should live a life of holiness. We're breaking this text down into two big parts, verses 1 through 17 and then 18 through 21, the life of holiness. We should live a life of holiness which comes from a mind that thinks rightly about Christ. R.C. Sproul once said, we live in a mindless age. A mindless age. Sproul was no Eastern mystic. He's not uh, encouraging us to empty our minds or even saying that we are empty in our minds, but rather that we are anti-mindful. We're not even anti-intellectual. We're increasing in our ability to learn and know. Uh, We're increasing in our scientific endeavors in the secular world and the church's relationship with science. We're certainly not anti-technology, I say as I preach from an iPad. Uh, Thankful some some people aren't here that are very anti-Apple. This is the sign of original sin, so I suppose there's something to be said about uh, androids. But we're anti-mind. We are so afraid of rationalism in the church that we effectually leave our brains in the car when we come through the front door of the sanctuary. Now, I will say that nowhere is this less true than in Christ's covenant church. But the point remains. We're very anti-mind, and far too often Christians overemphasize the heart. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Of course, the heart matters. As, as uh, Pastor Stewart has reflected often on uh, John Calvin, it's the heart that makes the theologian. It's who do you love? Who do you love? The Lord Jesus Christ. But we overemphasize the mind, or excuse me, the heart, and we forget that the mind is where right thinking happens. Right thinking begins in the mind, and right thinking precedes right living. Right thinking precedes right living. Uh, Paul tells us that we're to be renewed in the spirit of our mind in Ephesians 4. And the outworking of that is a life lived reflective of what we know to be true. Of course, all that you know will not get you into heaven. You won't be tested. There's no um, uh, entry into heaven jeopardy or anything like that when we arrive. What you know is not what gets you into heaven. It's a matter of what you believe in your heart. But God has made us in such a way that the way into our heart is through our mind. Or is it through your stomach? It's one or the other. But it's definitely, scripturally speaking, it's through your mind. Well, in the text here, Peter gives us several mindful terms, things related to how we think, and the way we're supposed to approach Christian living that are important for us to understand. He starts off, uh, well, he starts off with the word therefore, and you all know what we're supposed to do when you see a therefore, you ask what it's therefore. Of course, he's simply concluding what he's already said. I mentioned this morning that verses 3 all the way through 13 are one long run-on sentence, and so he's actually summarizing the fact that the salvation that's been prophesied in the Old Testament into which angels long to look, which has been revealed to us, ought to cause us to live a certain way. So therefore, in light of the living hope that we have, he says, prepare your minds for action. And we'll keep going uh, phrase by phrase. 
literally what he says is gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. And that may make no sense to you. We don't often talk about girding up our loins. But consider the context in which Peter is writing. He's writing in the Roman world where most people, men and women alike, wore long flowing robes. Similar maybe to what I'm wearing right now, which doesn't make getting into combat very easy. Having all this bunched up, you, perhaps you've seen me after the service, one of my children will come up to give me a hug or something, and I'll squat down, and somehow all of the material from my Geneva gown will get tucked under the heels of my shoes. Even though I haven't moved my feet, it'll all end up under there, and as I try to stand up, I'm kind of stuck on it, and I have to do this weird uh, get-up-on-my-toes thing in order to get the gown free for me to move around again. And so what soldiers would do before going into combat is they would take all the material of the robe from the back and they would pull it up between their legs and tuck it around their stomach and they'd wrap a belt around it and essentially make kind of, for lack of a better term, like a jumper to wear. Uh, that they would have freedom in their legs to move and to squat and bend and lunge and fight with a sword if they needed to. And the idea was when a soldier girded his loins, when he gathered up the extra material in his robe, he was preparing himself to be nimble and agile for war. And what Peter is telling us here is to gird up the loins of your mind. Get rid of all the excess stuff in your mind that is out of control. To bring under control the loose-flowing thoughts that will impede your spiritual growth is what he's saying. He wants us to be prepared for action in our brains. That's a a statement of self-discipline, isn't it? It takes discipline to think clearly and logically and practically and truthfully about what the Bible says. It takes work to do that. Now, frankly speaking, it's very easy to sit and listen to a sermon so long as the person preaching is speaking in your native tongue or one that you're familiar with. They're using the same or a similar translation from you, that you're using. And so long as they follow a semi-linear pattern uh, that most of us in a Western context are familiar with, you're going to basically keep up. The difficulty is in taking the truths that are articulated in Scripture or in a sermon and going home and cutting away all of the foolish thoughts in your mind that, that cause you to ignore what's being said or forget what's been said or to say that doesn't matter to me and rather to tighten your thinking up in a way that disciplines you for Christian living. There's a reason that the Puritans, and I think of Richard Baxter in particular, used to go to the homes of their parishioners, and they would encourage them to rehearse the sermon text with their family. That's an archaic way of saying, go over what you learned on Sunday for the rest of the week. Fathers, do you sit down with your family on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday rehearsing, rehashing, reconsidering what's been said and been taught in God's Word and how it applies to you and your family. That's what Peter's telling us to do, to prepare our minds for action by cutting away loose-hanging clothing in our minds and disciplining ourselves for Christian living. How do you do that? What's one of the ways you do that? He says, be sober-minded in the very next clause there. Prepare your minds for action being sober-minded. Picture an inebriated person trying to walk a straight line. 
You know that just the, if, if one eye starts to close faster than the other, they'll lean a little bit one way and they lose their balance and start to stumble. And then they try to overcorrect the other way and they lean and fall the other way. And so you can picture this person just vacillating between two opinions, if I can say it that way. And he says, be sober-minded. Peter wants us to have full control in our minds about the truth. Not to become intoxicated with false doctrine and worldly pleasures. And let's be honest, false doctrine and worldly pleasures are intoxicating. That's why we're so prone to chase after them and to pursue them, because our flesh desires that. Think about Eve's sin in the garden. She saw the fruit that it was delightful to the eyes and pleasurable to be eaten, and she reached out and took it, because that's what our instincts look like. And so Paul says, don't become intoxicated with the things that the world has to offer, whether it's fleshly pleasures or false teaching, the things that tickle your ear, Paul will say elsewhere, the things that really appeal to your own sinful instincts, that make you simply feel good about yourself rather than feel good about God. He says, don't be fooled by those things, but be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. Maintain full control in light of the grace of God that's been revealed to us in Jesus Christ, just connecting back with the previous part of the text. A self-controlled thinking. We're to be people of the mind. Christians are to be people of the mind. In other words, in these two things, these two opening statements, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Peter is telling us to get our minds in gear for disciplined Christian living. And maybe that is a bit of a turnoff to you, that idea of disciplined Christian living. I know some of us here are uh, addicted to the snooze button, uh, and so the idea of discipline maybe lands a little flat or it makes you uncomfortable, and yet that's what Peter is telling us here in this text. That the Christian life is one of disciplined thinking, and it's born out of an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. That's the way our shorter catechism refers to it, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. That idea of apprehending, Jim and I enjoy talking about this word uh, when we have opportunity. To apprehend something is to lay hold of it and make it your own. And you can envision a police officer apprehending a criminal and getting his hands on him and taking him into control of that police officer, submitting him to his control, putting the handcuffs on. He's been apprehended. That's what we need to do concerning the mercy of God in Christ. Lay hold of it and make it our own. And when we do, we begin to live more disciplined lives. And it causes us now, in this next clause, to set our hope fully on the grace of God that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fully. Well, Paul's returning, or excuse me, Peter here is returning to the idea of the hope that we have as Christians and saying that just as Christ was revealed to us in his first coming and all that that entailed, his dying for our sins on the cross and being raised to new life by the power of God, in which we place our hope, again, think about our time in 1 Peter 1 this morning, that same reality is going to be brought to consummation at his second coming when he comes again. And we set our hope fully on that reality, that just as surely as Christ came and died for us 
and was raised again and exalted to glory, so sure are we that he's going to come again in glory and reveal the fullness of God's grace towards us. And we set our hope on that. We live, as we said this morning, in light of the hope of who God is and what he's done for us. We live in light of who God is and what he's done for us on the basis of what Christ has already done and what he's promised to do. Think of all that God has done for you. You were alienated and hostile towards God, dead in the transgressions of your heart in which you once once walked, sons of disobedience, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, and without hope. It's almost like Peter has read Ephesians chapter 2 and is reminding us, as Paul does, that all of those things have been undone for us in Christ. We were without God, now we've been redeemed by God. We were without hope, now we have living hope. We were once dead in our sins, now we've been born again and made alive. All these contrasts have been done for us, uh, these changes, the transformation in salvation that occurs for the Christian, and Peter here wants us to know it. He tells us, In fact, in this next section, he says, verse 14, as obedient children. Literally, what it says is as children of obedience. Now, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 very briefly, and you'll see just how uh, explicit Paul is being, or excuse me, Peter is being here in his riffing on Paul's writing. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, we're going to come back to that in a second, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, which was futile. Now, Peter tells us, as obedient children, as children of obedience, rather than sons of disobedience, do not be conformed to the passions, same as Ephesians 2, of your former ignorance. This ought to scratch the itch of all you nonconformists out there. This is exactly what Peter is saying. Don't be a conformist to the world. To the world. In fact, he is telling us to be a conformist, isn't he? To Christ. He's saying we should walk in conformity with the newness of life we've been given in Christ. But he says first, don't live in conformity to the world as you used to. Rather, live like God is in holiness, set apartness, being different from the world. Nonconformity to the world implies it necessitates conformity to God's law. It necessitates conformity to God's Son. Put very simply, not living in conformity to the world means living like a Christian. That's kind of simple, isn't it? Then why is it so hard for us? Do you find that difficult? Living in conformity to God's Son, putting away and not conforming to the ignorance of your former passions? I want to speak for a moment to our teenagers and our nearly teenagers and perhaps our college students who are home visiting, and maybe to the parents of those same people. I'm fascinated, frankly, how many Christian parents simply want their kids to fit in. And I'm fascinated 
and shocked, I would say, at how many young people, teenagers and the like, simply want to fit in with their peers, fit in with the people around them. Not to be different, not to be set apart, to be on the, in, in the inner circle, in the, the conformity group to what the world around them looks like. If their friends do things that the Bible says not to do, eh, who cares? I mean, it's just they're hanging out with their friends. They'll, they'll adjust as they get older. Hopefully when they go off to college, it won't get worse. And I remember my testimony, right? I grew up in the church, wandered away, and came back in my 30s, so God can certainly do it for them. How foolish are we if we think that we're not playing with eternal fire when we encourage our children to be just like the world around them? And how foolish must you be, young people, to say to yourselves, I can do it just like the world and still claim to have a true relationship with God? And yet that's what we see in so many churches, in so many homes, is young people whose primary concern is not being thought of as weird or different or outside, but on the inside with their peers. As if that earned anyone a seat at Christ's table. And as if the things of this world are not all passing away. So I want to challenge us from Peter this morning or this evening as he says, don't be conformed to the passion. Listen to what he calls them, of your former ignorance. Ignorance is a real polite word. That's a real polite translation. And I won't make it sound any worse, although I think the Old Testament might say, don't be conformed to the passions of your former foolishness. But rather, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. This call to holy living, living sort of climaxes here in, in this, uh, this fifth element that, uh, that Peter gives us here in verse 15. Be explicitly holy in all your conduct. To be a child of God, it is necessary that we bear a resemblance to the family. God in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 2, among other places, says, Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Peter here, as he's about to do in chapter 2, is ripping verses out of the Old Testament applied to Israel and giving them to the church. Just as God called Israel out of Egypt and reset everything about their lives. Think about the things that God did when he pulled Israel out of Egypt. He says in uh, Exodus chapter 12 to Moses, today will be the beginning of a new year for you. Today is the first day of a new month. I'm literally resetting your calendar. I don't even want you to think about time in relationship to the Egypt from which I'm rescuing you. Everything is different about the way you live now in light of me and our relationship. He brings them to Mount Sinai. He says, this is what you can eat and can't eat, what you can wear and can't wear, what you can do and can't do, and how you ought to live. And you do that because I've bought you at a great, great price And I've redeemed you for myself, and I'm calling you to reflect our relationship in the way you live. I'm holy, so y'all be holy. And that's what Peter's saying here to the church. In light of what Christ has done for us, we're to live the same way, to bear a family resemblance. I often, 
when I'm dropping my children off for school or at a birthday party or at an event, I'll say this as they're getting out of the car. And they know exactly what I mean when I say it, but I'll share it with you. I say, what's your last name? They'll say, Lockhart. I say, where did you get that name? And they said, from you. I said, then while you're here, live in such a way as to honor me who gave you that name. And God says to you, Christian, what's your last name? And you say, Christian. He said, where did you get it? Well, from Jesus. He says, so live in such a way as to honor the reality of that name. Be holy because I'm holy. In all your conduct, he says, in all your conduct. Uh, Many Christians think that holy living just means holy religious living. Like, we come to church, and that's kind of, our friends don't do that. So on Sunday, that's when we'll do our weird stuff. But the rest of the week, we're going to do our normal, secular, kind of run-of-the-mill, like all our friends do stuff. But Sunday, yeah, I know, we don't do those things on Sunday because it's the Lord's Day, and we come to church. So holy living really means setting apart Sunday. That's not at all what it means. Holy living, according to Peter, and he makes it explicit here in verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in what? All your conduct, all of it, all your conduct. Turn with me back to Luke chapter 11, which Marshall read for us uh, just moments ago. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus was speaking. A Pharisee asked him to dine with him, and he was astonished that Jesus didn't first wash his hands. Verse 39, and the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees, You cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish. You've got holy religious living down pat. You're set apart from everybody else. You're doing all the religious norms that separate you from everybody else. And he doesn't give him a round of applause or pat him on the back for it, does he? He says, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. In fact, you're like dead bones. You're like graves And then he pronounces curses on them. When your Bible says, whoa, that's a curse. Jesus is applying a a curse to these Pharisees and lawyers. I mean, we might go so far as to say Jesus tells the first lawyer joke in all of history. Jesus here uh, pronounces woes on these Pharisees because they're doing the outside part of holy religious living, but not the inside part of holy conduct in all of their ways, in all of their relationship with God. And that's striking. It should be striking to us that when Peter says, be holy in all your conduct, he's simply saying what Jesus is saying in his earthly ministry. Rather than just making holy religious living the center of Christian life, we don't worship false gods, we worship the true God. We don't steal, uh, we don't murder, we do all the outward things we're supposed to do. That's the same as the religion of the Pharisees. But Peter calls us to a whole and total transformation of life. It's a heart issue, a full-person change brought about by the Holy Spirit. Be holy in all your conduct. Christian men and women, children, boys and girls, God wants you to be holy, to be set apart from the world, to be used only for His glory and His good, to be different than the profane ways and things that your friends think and do and say and how they act. God wants us to be set apart. 
because he himself is set apart. To be morally pure in our conduct because he is pure in all of his ways. And that's the call to Christian living, to be holy. And then Peter moves into the why. He shifts our attention to the why here. He's already said that God is holy. And now he details for us the purchase price of our holiness. So at first we had a call to holiness in verses 13 through 17. And now we have a cost of holiness in verses 18 through 21. The saying goes... With great power comes great responsibility. Likewise, with great heritage comes great responsibility. And if we've been ransomed by God and bought into his family and we call on him as father, we simply ought to live like it's so. Listen to what Peter says here. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. And we'll pause there for a second. You've been ransomed. So, the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, he's, he's really uh, alluding to a couple things here. First of all, the, the sinful nature that we've inherited by virtue of being human beings. We've been ransomed from that. We've been freed from bondage to, slin, to sin and death. That certainly happened in Christ Jesus. We've been freed, haven't we? And he goes on to say, the ways that your forefathers lived, thinking about the external religiosity that was so prevalent in his day, we're also freed from that because it's not about conformity to a a series of regulations concerning ceremony. Rather, it's relationship with God through Jesus Christ that we've been saved to. But he says, you've been freed to that, and he calls it being ransomed, being ransomed. Well, some translations use the word redeem. And we think of it primarily as a religious term. We talk about redemption. Uh, we talk about uh, the, the cost of redemption and, and the redemption that Jesus bought for us or won for us on the cross. But in Peter's day, this notion of redemption was really a commercial term used for the liberation of a slave or a war captive by a payment of a price. It was to buy the freedom of someone else, to buy the freedom of someone else at a great cost. When Christ ransomed us from our feudal ways, he paid an incredible cost. We talk about the free grace of God and Jesus Christ, and indeed to us it is free. It doesn't cost us anything to receive the salvation that God freely offers to all people. It's a free offer of God's grace. All who come to me, I will by no means cast them out. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ came into the world to save sinners, sinners among whom I am the foremost. The saying is worthy of full acceptance. The free offer of God's grace is real, and it costs us nothing, and it costs Christ everything. The purchase price for your free grace was the very precious blood of Jesus Christ. Paul wants, or excuse me, I keep saying Paul, Peter here wants us to think about this great cost. You and I were slaves. 
slaves to sin, war captives, Satan being the great general of the prince of the power of the air, he himself enslaving us in the great war with God where he took us as captives and Jesus came and bought us back. That's such a great cost. Look at the lofty language applied to our purchase price. Look at this with me. You've been ransomed, not with perishable things like silver and gold. I don't know about you. Uh, we talked about this a bit this morning. I think of silver and gold as pretty precious. Uh, if someone were to bring me a wheelbarrow full of gold, my birthday's not coming up soon, but if it is, and if you think about it, a wheelbarrow full of silver and gold would be a pretty great birthday present, wouldn't it? I would think of that as quite precious. What a wonderful gift to have a whole big barrel full of silver and gold. And Peter here essentially says, silver and gold, that stuff's garbage. Garbage in comparison to the actual purchase price of your soul. It's perishable. Perishable things like silver and gold, that's not what you were bought with, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This language applied to Christ who purchased our salvation is wonderfully reminiscent of the Old Testament language of sacrifices for sin. A lamb without blemish or spot is sacrificed to pay for the sins of the people. And here Peter tells us that the precious blood of Christ was shed to purchase you and me into the family of God. It's easy for us to think about these realities as categorically true, isn't it? If you spent any time in the church, any amount of time as a Christian, these things make sense to you as truth statements. Jesus Christ shed his blood for our sins. He was like a lamb without spot or blemish. We know that the Old Testament required it, that God expected it, that Jesus came to be that, and he died for us. Those are simply indicative statements. They are true statements. And we go, yep, agree, got it. When was the last time that you thought about the experience of Christ's precious blood, each drop of it worth more than all the gold and silver in the world, being shed onto the muddy soil, covered in urine and feces under a rough wooden cross where thousands of other men had shed their blood, his blood being mixed with theirs on the ground and lost to the sands of time in order to purchase you out of slavery to sin and death and into his family. What a cost. What a savior. Scarcely will a man die for a righteous person, let alone his enemy. But Jesus came and died and shed his blood for us, for our sin, to make us his own to purchase for himself a people for his own possession, prized and treasured out of all the peoples in the world. He did that for us. 
And it cost him his life. More precious than gold or silver. And without spot or without blemish. What was the cost of your holiness? Not your holy living, but your being set apart unto God. It was the very blood of Jesus Christ. What should that do then? Or if I can ask Schaefer's question, how then shall we live in light of that great cost? Go back to verse 15. Be ye holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. I don't mean to reduce it so simplistically, but this is kind of basic math, isn't it? God sent his only beloved son into the world to pour out his immeasurably valuable blood on the ground for us sinners, enemies, wretches. And the call to us in response after we repent and place our faith in him is to live holy lives. And I think to myself, yeah, one plus one equals two, doesn't it? And yet we struggle. We struggle with the Christian life. And so we reach out in faith and in hope that God, by His Spirit, according to His promises across the pages of Scripture, will enable us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called, according to the riches of His mercy. He enables us to do so, causing us to keep His commandments. Jesus here is portrayed for us as extremely valuable and extremely lovely. And as we apprehend His worth, our lives begin to change. Thomas Chalmers wrote a little book that I commend highly to you called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. This is the illustration I often use, uh, and perhaps you've seen this before. This, this cup will have to work. Imagine that this cup was empty and was full of air, and air represented the sin and selfishness in my life. Now, if I do this, how much of the air in that cup do I get rid of? None. It's still full of air. I won't do this, but if I turn it upside down real fast on this table, how much of the air do I get rid of? None. It's all still in there. If I shake it really hard back and forth, any of the air gone? None. There's only one way to expel the air from this cup. This cup being my heart and this air being sin. There's only one way to expel the sinful air in that cup, and that's to fill it up with a new Ooh, there it is. Affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. As our hearts are filled with awe of Jesus Christ and the great price he paid to redeem us, it drives out of our heart all of the self that remains, all the old man that clings to us, and the power of Christ's love in us forces that out of our hearts and it orients our lives towards the way that he has called us to live. And so, my brothers and sisters, quite simply, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded and meditate on the precious price that was paid for you in redemption so that you might live holy lives. That's what Peter's telling us to do here in this text. That's what Peter wants us to do here in this text. Well, one last thing I want to mention before we bring it to a close. He says, this Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times. Jesus is no plan B, by the way. Christ's redemption on the cross for you and me, for sinners, was plan A from the beginning, from before the world was made. But listen to this. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your 
sake. For your sake. That's amazing. The whole of redemptive history took place in the farthest reaches of eternity and on the stage of the world for your sake. Everything God has done from covenanting within himself to redeem a people for his own possession, to the creation of the universe, to the making of man, to the moving of nations and peoples and languages, to the uh, organization and superintending of all of time, brought to its pinnacle moment in history at the cross of Jesus Christ, happened for your sake. That's incredible. It's incredible that God would arrange world history, all history for us, that we might know this Jesus Christ who shed his precious blood, that we might find salvation in him. Christ has redeemed us from unholiness to live a life of holiness because of his perfect holiness for our good and for the glory of his great name, which is our family name. Let's pray to him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time in your word today. This first chapter of Peter's epistle is so rich with truth about your great love for us and the hope that we have in light of it. Would you cause us, Lord, as we've been born again to a living hope, to live lives of holiness as we contemplate the precious cost that was paid for our ransom. Help us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel with which we've been called, that we might be salt and light in this world, that others might see our good works and give glory to you, our Father in heaven. Help us to not take your name in vain, but to bear it well in our lives day to day. And we pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.